All right, I think my mic was off. Sorry about that. I was mocking our pastor for having it right on his notes and then saying it wrong up here. I know that just sets me up to screw something up big today, right? Okay, good. So chances are that'll happen anyhow. Will you guys please stand with me? I want to read this verse to you. And each week we've begun standing as we read a piece of the passage. We can't read the whole thing. It's a long passage. But we do this not out of tradition or not out of um, really anything other than just giving respect to it is the word of God that we want to hear. Uh, It's not my words. My words do nothing. It's God's words. And so in Acts chapter 8, I want to read to you uh, starting in verse 9. It says, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We listen to your word. It is not mine. My word, my words, my best plans do nothing. Jesus, it is you. When you come and you speak to us, we are your church. And you are the word of God become flesh. And so today, Jesus, we ask that you would speak, that I would fade somewhere in the background, that you would come and meet us where we are. That, Jesus, you would open up the Bible to us. That as we have been doing this study on on really what the church is. Lord, let us lay aside all the things that we have created church to be and let us just press in to what you have called the church to be. You created the church. You've called the church your bride. And, and we want to be just that. We want to be all that you have called us to be. So Jesus, will you speak to us? Will you challenge us? Will you comfort us? Will you convict us? Will you lead us and guide us? Jesus, all these things are in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. If you're a note taker, this is in the app. Uh, But if you're a note taker, I'll give you kind of a starting point for today. Today's main idea is very simple. It's the church, capital C, the big church, is many people on one mission to share Jesus with the lost world. So we're working through a series in in the book called Acts. And this is the where we get to see Jesus after the resurrection, Jesus comes and spends time with hundreds of people, making himself known after being dead for three days and then resurrected, spending much time proving he is alive. And so as he does that for weeks and he spends time, he then commissions the church or he commissions a group of people. And the word church, really, if you just trace it back to its Greek word in the New Testament, really means a people called out. And that we are a people called out of our lives and into a mission with Jesus. And so we've looked at the church being an imperfect place. We've looked at the church being a place empowered by God. We've looked at the church being a place for transformation and healing. And today we say this, the church is many people on one mission to share Jesus with the lost world. So Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Let's start back in verse 1. 
It says, and Saul approved of his execution. So let's pause in the middle of that. Just That's like walking in the middle of a movie, right? And so where we were last week is we were looking at the story of a young man named Stephen. If you go back two weeks at the, end, at the beginning of chapter 6, at the end of Pastor Vinny's message, what we saw is there, there's a church that has grown to thousands, tens of thousands in Jerusalem. So there's a Christian church primarily made up of thousands and thousands of Jewish converts or Jewish believers in Jesus, and the church in Jerusalem has grown and grown and grown, and it's grown to the size to where we're beginning to see big factions in the church, splits in the church, and one that we get to read about is that there are Hellenized Jews versus the Hebrew Jews. Now, Hellenized Jews would be the ones that are more more Greek in their approach to life. The other ones are very more Hebrew. Now, they're all Jewish, but we just see this line kind of go down the center of them, and one set of widows is being cared for more than another set of widows. So kind of a, a racial or sociological or cultural divide. And so the church begins to raise up leaders to address that issue. Those leaders later on in the New Testament will be called deacons, those that serve and care for the physical needs of the church, just like we have deacons that serve and care for the physical needs of the church. And so we see them raise up these seven men, one of them being Timothy. And last week we spent a very long passage looking at Timothy. And as there, is, there, there are these charges against Timothy and against the church that they're trying to destroy Judaism and that they're trying to change everything, a young man full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says over and over again, stands up and courageously makes a stand for the gospel. And he does so by going back through Jewish history looking at Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and just showing how all the, all the law and the prophets have always pointed forward to a redeemer come who was Jesus. And so as Timothy does this, he makes an amazing case for the gospel, uh, and for his amazing case for the gospel, he is executed. And so the Jewish religious leader wanting to retain their power and position, not believing what Stephen is saying, they literally execute him by throwing rocks at him until finally he goes to the ground and they literally will smash his head to kill him. That's stoning. And so this is where we see the first martyr in the Acts church. So the first martyr of Christians in the first century, a short time after Jesus has ascended. And so this is the place, this is the status of the church. The church, what you and I would call the church, really are Jewish followers of Jesus that go to temple, Jewish temple. And then they meet together in homes, but they believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in what you and I would call the Old Testament, what a Jew would just call their Bible. And so as this first martyr hits the first century landscape of Christianity, what happens is, is it causes it causes a movement in the church. It pushes the church outside of its comfort zone. We'll see that today. But what happens here is there's a young man, or there's a man named Saul who was present in the last chapter. Who we get a little verse here that says Saul approved of the execution. And what we're going to see is this man really coming to play next week. So let's start back at verse 1. It says, and Saul approved of his, meaning Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So here's what takes place. This martyr, Stephen, being executed in front of those that follow Jesus causes this collection of followers of Jesus 
This really initiates a massive wave of persecution. And what that does is it drives the Christians, drives those followers of Jesus out of Jerusalem. Now, if you're Jewish and you live in Jerusalem, that's, that, that is the most prominent place for a Jewish person to live. But now these Jews have started following Jesus. And again, Christianity and Judaism were just intrinsically linked together. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish prophets. Jesus was the promise to the nation of Israel as, as God had continued to promise redemption. Now, it's not about a people group. It's about redemption for the world. But what you see is this, it takes root and is birthed in Judaism. And so now there are Jewish people following Jesus, believing in Jesus, who saw him live and die and raise back to life, watched him ascend to heaven alive, and now they're being chased out of Jerusalem. And so as, as persecution hits the first century church, we see it drive them to two specific places right outside Jerusalem, one Judea and the other Samaria. Now, if you remember, these are Jesus' last words in Acts chapter 2. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's Jesus' idea for the church. You will be my witnesses. You're going to tell others about me. You're going to witness to the fact. Now, I know in the, in the Christian church, oftentimes we hear the word witness. It sounds like quoting a, a set of verses to tell somebody the gospel of Jesus. But being a witness, or in this term, you're going to be my witnesses, where that came from was really witnessing to the facts about Jesus, saying, I saw him alive, I saw him do miracles, I saw him teach, and then I saw him executed. And after he was executed, he was dead. I saw him dead and laid in a grave, and then he came back to life and lives eternally. I've seen him alive. So the first century church, as they are witness to this, are to take this message and spread this message to others, to go be a witness, kind of like a witness in a courtroom. But the call was, you'll be my witnesses here, but it can't stop here. You'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, but it can't stop here. You need to go to Judea and Samaria, and these places are not necessarily places Jews like to go especially Samaria, which we'll see in just a minute. And then he said, and it doesn't stop there either. It's to the ends of the earth. And as we all sit here today, we're a fulfillment of that. We're, we're the ends of the earth. You can't get much further away from Jerusalem than being right here. But the message was supposed to be taken by those who have seen and believe in Jesus, by those whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. They are to take this message, take this, this story of this man, this teacher, this prophet, God become flesh this healer, this savior, and to take this and to take his message and witness it to other people. To take and say, this is what I've seen. This is what I've experienced. This is the Jesus I know. Just like you and I today are to be witnesses to the world. We're to take the, the Jesus we know, the Jesus we've experienced, the Jesus we've seen, and to take that to the ends of the earth if necessary. Now for us, the ends of the earth could be next door. Right? It could be our own family. It could be in our school, in our workplace. It could be whatever. But the result of the church is to make sure that the gospel goes everywhere. And so what we see is really, really common. The church gets really comfortable growing and growing and growing in their home. As they're in Jerusalem and God is multiplying and blessing them, we see them grow, but they remain. 
Now, if you've been around generations the last two and a half years, we've planted three churches in the last two and a half years. And you've watched and seen and felt the struggle of what it looks like to send people out. In fact, if you've been one of a 75 to 100 people that we've sent out, you've been the one who's experienced all the change too. Like you, you had to leave where you were happy, leave where you were comfortable, and go and to do something that God was calling you to do. And this church in Jerusalem, as we see them grow and grow and grow, what we don't see is anybody go. And so now, now this martyr, now Stephen is executed for his faith. And what it does is it forces the Christian church to move beyond its borders. So verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They wept over him. But Saul, there's that man again, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So obviously Luke, the author of Acts, who also writes the gospel that's given his name, he's introducing us to this man named Saul. Now, if you've never been around Christianity, it may not make much sense. Next week, we'll make sense of that. If you've been around Christianity or the Bible for any amount of time, this becomes the first century church leader, Paul, who plants more churches and does more things in the New Testament than pretty much anybody else. But right now, he's a man called Saul who is going after and persecuting and dragging off to prison and beating Christians. Some who will go on to be executed, some who will be imprisoned. And he is going house to house and he is persecuting anyone who follows Jesus. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, Here's what's going on. As the persecution hits the first century church, it drives them probably against their will outside of their home, outside of their comfort zone, outside of where they live, outside of their own people group, outside of their own ethnicity, outside of everything they've ever known, away from their family and business and everything else, and it drives them into new places. But here's what it says. As they go, they go about spreading the word. They go about telling people about Jesus. Now, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to assume something that is not written in Scripture, but I, I just imagine if the church had willingly, early, started sending people. Imagine if this had been part of their vision. Like Jesus said, here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, now that we're in Jerusalem and people are coming to faith, we should start thinking about how to accomplish that next thing. Wonder if they had done that if persecution would have looked the same. Or is persecution what really the, the only thing that was going to drive them beyond where they were? And the reason I ask that, and the re it's, 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 it's a hypothetical question, but we then have to ask the question, what is God calling us to, and what's it going to take to get us there? Like, like what is it going to take to get us outside of our comfort zone? What's it going to take to get us to share Jesus with our next-door neighbor, our co-worker? What is it that it's going to take to get us to accomplish the things that God has given us? And again, hypothetical. And I don't know what God is calling you particularly to or what would have happened if they had done something different. But it bears asking the question. Last week, we said this, and our community group spent some time talking about it. God uses the most unlikely people in the most uncommon ways to accomplish redemption. The church is filled with unlikely people doing things that only God can accomplish so that Jesus is glorified. We were talking about this in my community group because somebody had said that really resonated with her. And I said, well, I was really thinking me. I mean, if we're all honest, right? 
Like, but God uses unlikely people, and he uses unlikely means, but he does so to accomplish his goal. And I think that's what we see here. I'm sure that's what we see here with persecution. He uses the persecuted, and he uses persecution, unlikely people, in an uncommon way, to drive out his message. And in doing so, what we're going to see is the gospel take root in whole new countries. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, if you've been around the Bible any amount of time, you know Jews and Samaritans don't get along at all. Right? And here's what it is. Samaritans are half Jewish, half something else. And during a tough time in Israel's history, they're the ones who didn't stay, they left, and they intermarried. And so Jews will call them Samaritan dogs and, you know, half-breeds, and they'll just tell them these things. And so Jews and Samaritans, though once shared history, well, they have a shared history once we're together, these are the ones that had moved on, married outside their race and their faith. And it's mostly about marrying outside their faith, but them, they kind of intrinsically linked the two. And so now as they border each other, they border one another, literally there's a body of water that ran between parts of Jerusalem or parts of Judea and Samaria. And people that had to travel through it would rather cross that body of water, go around Samaria and cross another body of water to get back just to be not walking through Samaria. And so there was this deep divide that happened over hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And so here's what it says, Philip, now a Jewish man from Jerusalem, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, when it says this, proclaim to them the Christ, remember, Samaritans have a shared Jewish history, right? They have a shared faith that they knew back once upon a time. Many of them still practice, some do not, but they have a shared history. And so it's not just saying Philip shared Jesus with them. He's saying something different. Philip shared the Christ. The way he writes it there, the way it is written for us is you've got to understand that they are sharing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament redemption promises. And so Philip is taking to them something that they have this shared history of and this shared anticipation of, and he is saying, listen, this has been fulfilled in Christ. If you're a note taker, wrote it down this way. When we share our faith, it is more than just a set of historical truths or facts. But it is, a God, it is about God's fulfillment of redemption in the person of Jesus. That God has promised from, from all of history to enter into our story, to enter into human history and to fulfill redemption, to right what is wrong, to forgive what is sinful, to heal what is broken, and that God did that in the person of Jesus, that God himself entered into human history, became flesh, lived the life we were called to live, died the death we deserve and he didn't, and then rose from the grave showing he has power over everything. So Philip goes about sharing this message more than just, hey, there's this guy named Jesus, and if you want to go to heaven, don't want to say this little prayer, whatever it is, right? He is sharing that God has fulfilled the promises given to all of their ancestors, and he's done so in the person of Jesus. Verse 6, and it says, And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw things that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame or were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So there's words plus 
experience. They're experiencing something true in Jesus through his servant, Philip. Now, Philip was not an apostle. Philip was a deacon in the Jerusalem church who, for whatever reason, when persecution hit, left. Now, we don't know how. We don't get any more detail than that. But what we're hearing here is there's a man that is going out, and he goes out and he proclaims God's promises fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus, that there is power in what he is saying, and there's power in what he's doing. I remember, and most of you know my story, I, I have a long drug history, and, and I, I came to faith in prison, and so I have this long, ugly past. And I remember when I got out, I remember, first off, I'd been in and out and in and out, so getting out was not normal. I mean, it was not abnormal. I got out a lot, but staying out was new, okay? And so as I got out, there was this kind of like I had done before. I swear, this time is different, right? Anybody ever heard that from somebody who was a drug addict? Yes, right? Uh, so this time's going to be different. Well, what happened was my family and, and, and my wife, now my wife, uh, all saw something different. They saw something that had changed, but what really made an impact is over time, I remember I have, a, I have a guy who I grew up in this family. I called my little brother. We're about 14 months apart. He lives in Ohio, and we would talk on the phone quite a bit. We'd get on the phone, and the phone conversation almost always started off with, hey, so you still doing that Jesus thing? Yep. Still, still clean? Yep. Cool. We'd go on and talk about whatever else we were going to talk about, right? Maybe five years of that, four years of that. And the phone call started off in the same way, and then he says, I need Jesus too. What it was was not just words, but it was experience. I still write a guy that I did prison time with. He'll be out in the next couple years. And over the same thing, over a span of time, what I said, and I, so, and I came to faith in prison, so I did a, a stretch of time where I was a Christian, still inside. It's not easy. And it wasn't easy for me, at least. And so he got to see a part of that. Now, I was a terrible Christian, by the way, at that moment. Uh, tons of flaws. Not that I'm perfect now, just in case you were confused. Just in case. All right. I know I totally look perfect. So anyhow, so over years of writing him and my wife and I caring about him, the message of Jesus seeped into his life. And, and, and he left the thing that we used to be a part of. And, and he got out of that and, and began to read the Bible and began to do different things. And now, now he's going back in and he is helping other people that used to live the life we used to live, help them get out of that life. And he's still in prison. But it came, there's, there's power in words, but the experience of seeing Jesus transform a life, it, you can't underestimate the power of a transformed life. So Philip is going through and he's, he's got both of these things going for him. Verse, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Notice that part. He himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, he is not proclaiming God. He is kind of saying he's God. That's what's going on, right? Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What happens is there's this guy who is commanding attention. And the things he's doing is drawing people in. But he's drawing people to himself. Now they see a man with both words and power, but he's drawing attention to Jesus, not himself. And it says that they begin to give themselves to this life. They, 
are baptized, both men and women. True power. Some people captivate or amaze others by having some form of temporal power, financial, authoritative, academic, etc. The gospel of Jesus is entirely different, truly transforming people forever. When we look at the story in here, you don't have to have an idiotic past like mine. You have your own story. Maybe yours is, uh, I'm sure yours is a lot better than mine. But the transforming power of Jesus is the one thing that we all have in common. Wherever we were, whatever we struggled with, whether it was by our own choice and our own sins or sins that people committed against us, whatever it is, the common the commonality we all have is that we've experienced the transforming power of Jesus in our lives. And when that shines through and we point to the transforming salvation of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, lives are changed and people will give their lives to it. And they, these people go forward and they get baptized and they identify with Jesus and they begin sharing Jesus with others. Verse 13, even Simon, that magician, himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. Here's what happened. Simon believed, was baptized, and began to change, right? We see the transformation even in this character, Simon the magician. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not, he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is an odd time in Christian history. This is early in the first years of Christianity. So Christianity is taking root in a Jewish temple town, biggest Jewish temple area, Jerusalem. And as it's beginning to take root there, people are starting to come to believe in this Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the promised one, the fulfillment of God's promises, that, that this Jesus is real. And they're beginning to kind of assent to the idea of the truth of Jesus. But really, there's a separation in the, in the early chapters of Acts in between when people are baptized and when the Holy Spirit empowers them for life transformation and ministry. And there's these times, sometimes it happens really close together and sometimes it happens separated by what might be weeks or days or something like that. And, and this is one of those cases. Philip is going and he's sharing the gospel with them and he's baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And I note that they point that out, right? Where we're called to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, and I think that there's just a disconnect as, as Philip is going around. He's telling them about Jesus, but he doesn't have a very full understanding of the gospel. And, and it's just in this weird era in the first decade of the church where we see these things separated a little bit. But what's cool about that is way back in Jerusalem, not incredibly far away, but in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, especially the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they hear about the work that Philip is doing in Samaria. And so what they do is immediately they begin to send leaders that have a more full or well-rounded understanding of the gospel, Jesus, baptism, things like that, and they send them out to partner with Philip. And so what they hear is, hey, we hear there's people that are coming into faith in Jesus, but they don't really have a good leader. They don't have anybody there to help kind of really make sure that they've got some things put together. And so Peter and John go to Samaria. We're talking about one mission, but many people. So Peter and John come from Jerusalem to this brand new group of believers for, some, for the sole purpose of caring for them. Philip had shared Jesus with them and baptized them, multiple people in multiple occasions, on one unified mission. 
So the folks in Jerusalem know what's going on, and they know that there is this man, Philip, that history will call Philip the evangelist because of this, who is telling people about Jesus. He's even baptizing people in Jesus. But clearly that there's, there's still some need for some leadership to come in and help ground the gospel in this new community. So Peter and John go out and do that. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now again, I'm going to tell you, this is the oddest section of church history in the sense that baptism and the Holy Spirit are not entirely singly unified in one moment as the promise goes, right? As the promise of baptism is, as Peter will see, we'll quote this in a minute, but repent and be baptized, Peter will say, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So the promise is there. The ascension is recent. The first evangelist is going out. People are coming to faith, but there is this odd period of time where baptism and the Holy Spirit are closely related but not identical. I would love to give you a great reason for that. It's just an odd era in Christian history. And everything is so fresh and so new that it's just we see these things and then all of a sudden we start seeing this window tightening and baptism and being filled with the Holy Spirit become one event. And there's a good reason to see this and really ask ourselves, okay, so... I was baptized, but I really feel like I, I'm missing some of the transforming power of God. I think, I think this gives us the freedom to pray with one another and to pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. Or as we often do when we ordain elders or deacons or send out church planters, we pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Not that you can lose it, just that the things change and we want what God has for us. And so what we see here are, are these unique pieces and we see that different leaders play different roles. But we also watch is there are two things. And I think maybe one reason why they're separate right now is to remind us that being baptized is, is something we do in response to what Jesus has done in us. That we identify ourselves with Jesus. That we, as we go into the water, we identify with the death of Christ. and we come out of the water, we identify with the resurrection of Christ. But that there needs to be an understanding that God must empower us. That God must pour out his spirit and it doesn't always look the same. Like right here, there's no other real details given, just that it needs to happen. So when we gather together, like tonight at 6, when we gather together for Salem, we gather together to pray, those are things, man, I would say, come, ask me, ask one of our elders. Say, I don't know that, I don't know that I've ever been, th would you, can we pray? We'd love to pray with you. We would love to ask God to fill you, to, to prepare you, to equip you, to do, meet you wherever you need to be. But what's interesting here is this is one of the few places in the early history of the church where they're very distinct and very separate. Verse 18 says this, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now before we judge Philip, I mean, uh, Simon too harshly, he's a rookie Christian, sees something amazing, and is willing to pay for it, right? I mean, that's what happens, right? He's a guy that used to have some kind of power that attracted people, whatever that might be. They call him a magician. I don't know what he did. I'm not sure if there was a rabbit in the hat. I, I have no idea what took place, right? Clearly, he did something and attracted people. But now he has seen something genuine. He's seen something powerful. He's seen something beyond what he's ever seen. 
and let's just give him a break. He thought he could buy it, or he offered to buy it, right? And so they harshly correct him. But notice that they also offer him repentance. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, they call him to change. Repent, therefore, of this wicked decision and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing you, what you have said will come upon me. I would say this, there's always room for repentance, Right? The goal of God is never harsh and judgmental to the sense of that's the end. It can often be harsh and judgmental to the end of repentance, to the, to the goal of redemption, to the goal of transformation. And so right there, he, they just call him to repentance. He says, hey, pray for me. Pray that this part of my heart won't ever be like that again. Pray. Pray that I will not endure judgment for just wrong things inside of me. I think that's a prayer we can all pray, right? Like God change me. Because there's parts of us that are just ugly. There's parts of us that are just wrong. All of us. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you, you walk into a church, let, let's just say this. I know, starting with me and, and, I, and everyone in here, we're just not perfect. And we're not anywhere near perfect. And we just got broken pieces inside. I mean, we're, we're pointed at a person named Jesus. We, we, we have the power of transformation, but it's not done yet. Like, it's not fully complete. We want more, too. And that's the kind of more we want to present to everyone. Verse 25, now they, the apostles from Jerusalem, meaning, <clears throat> had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, and they returned to Jerusalem. Notice what they're doing. Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So now, they join that evangelistic mission on their way home, right? Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So it's already been told, we read this in Acts 6, in the early part, that Philip is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that God has blessed this man. Now, I, I would say this. He's also a man that listens to the Spirit, and, and that takes practice. He is submitted to God. He is constantly listening to God. He's constantly asking God, where would, where would you send me? And clearly, at one point, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to this little desert place. And so Philip does so. Verse 27. <clears throat> and he rose and went. Now, let me just pause. When we ask God to fill us, when we ask God to empower us, when we ask God for an answer or for a leading, for direction, for something, when God does it, when God answers, are you ready to get up and go, right? He tells Philip, hey, I want you to go over here to this desert place. That doesn't sound like an attractive offer. He didn't say, go, go to the pier in Huntington. Now I'll, I'll hang out with you there. He'd be like, all right, I'll go, right? Like, go to this desert place right? It says he got up and went, right? Read the gospel of Mark. The word immediately is in there like 27 times in the shortest gospel. Like when God leads, are we ready to go? Or do we just try and sound holy and go, well, I'll pray about it for a little bit, right? <laughs> and he came and he rose and he went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. We don't talk much about eunuchs in our culture. I'm grateful for that. <clears throat> if it wasn't for the history of the world, and, uh, you know, I mean, like, we probably, you know, the history of part one, two, whatever the thing that was, right? Mel Brooks, like, we might not even know what that is. <laughs> Old people laugh. That's good. All right, so uh, <clears throat> this is an Ethiopian official in charge of the queen's money. Let's just leave it there. Like this is an empowerful, 
a, a powerful, uh, important leader in Ethiopia. So now, remember, we're talking about a Jewish leader who is traveling around now non-Jewish parts, and now he is being sent to a place where there's an Ethiopian leader. Verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Oh, and the Ethiopian leader is reading the prophet Isaiah. Super cool, that'll come into play here. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him. Note that immediate obedience and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he, the Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, a lot of us, Pray, hey God, give me an opportunity to share Jesus with my coworker, my spouse, my kids, my family, my this, my that. Like, this is a best case scenario. It doesn't always look like this, right? But here it is. If we're in a place where God can use us, if we're empowered by God and we're listening to God and we're willing to do what God calls us to do, sometimes it's what it looks like. He says, hey, go over here. Philip goes over there. He says, go see that guy in that chariot. So he literally runs to the chariot. And he goes up and he opens up a conversation with him, seeing that he's reading Isaiah, saying, do you understand? He goes, how can I? And so he invites him up to talk about the Bible with him, right? I mean, this isn't a God-ordained moment. This is something God can do with you and with me. And, and God tees this up. This is not because Philip is an amazing evangelist. In fact, when we look at the passage he's going to get to answer for, First grade Christians could answer this question, right? I mean, like, this is the best passage ever. It's like handing you John 3.16 and going, what am I supposed to do? It's easy, right? There was this conversation. We were in a community group last Thursday night. And uh, one, of the, one of the ladies in our group has a friend that she sees a lot, uh, that she sees in the gym. And the question was, like, here's where the conversation is gone, and here's what we've talked about, and... Like, what's, what do I prepare for now? Like, what do I do now? What do I say next? What do I do? And, and really, we were talking about, and the other question was like, what, what, what role does prayer play in this? So what's my strategy? What role does prayer play? And, and I just, here's what, I think at the, at the end of it all, the one thing we can all take away from this, and this is kind of where we left off, is if you, if you are saturated in God's gospel, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you just know the gospel, like you can go into any circumstance and figure it out. You can apply it anywhere, right? And then prayer, prayer is, I, I, now is prayer softening this gentleman's heart? Maybe, possibly, I hope so. Is prayer preparing her for that conversation? Yeah, probably. But probably the greatest thing is that prayer is just the relationship between her and her God. And in that, God is speaking. And in that, God is leading. And in that, God is preparing her and possibly him and everything else. But I think we need to have less of a strategy or less of these five things need to be said or less of the, oh, I haven't, whatever. But that God is in charge of these moments. But are we ready for them? Are we prepared for them? Are we willing when God steps, when God calls us, are we willing to step up immediately and go do them? And then, then if all those things are in place, my guess is the conversation is going to go just fine. No matter who you are and what situation you're in. Is that God is going to use that moment. Verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? 
for his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or someone else? It's kind of the short version of some verses in Isaiah. The best one being Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah is writing the words that God has given him to write down to tell the people. And he is proclaiming a Messiah to come. This is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible up until about, uh, I forget what year, the the Qumran tablets and, and, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But here's what took place then. It was in the last century. What happened was that scholars or people probably too smart for their own good said there's no way Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, there's no way that was written after Jesus lived, was crucified and rose again. There's no way it was written beforehand. It's too perfect and it's too close. <clears throat> so about in the last hundred years, people began to critique, critique Isaiah and say, There must be an addition to Isaiah because it's just way too close. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The Qumran tablets were found. And what they found was something buried about 600 years before Jesus was born in a collapse. And what they found in there was a complete book of Isaiah, including this. So here's Philip. He's just a guy who's obedient. He's a guy filled with the Spirit. And God says, hey, I want you to go over here. And he goes. And he says, hey, see that guy? Go talk to him. And he runs. And he's reading this. You can't find a better Old Testament passage to talk to someone about Jesus. And so he leads right in there with the gospel of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. And and the the eunuch's question is incredibly fair. Is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? What's going on? So Philip right there dives in, understanding the gospel, and begins to proclaim Jesus to him. For those of you that are note takers, and this will be in your community group as well, Isaiah shared God's promise to redeem humanity just as we proclaim Jesus to others. They too proclaim Jesus, but as a promise to be fulfilled, many people, one mission. Now we're spanning a millennia, right, from Isaiah to the first century church is just under a thousand years. And we're talking about many, many people all given to one mission. And then all along there, after Isaiah's written this, and Isaiah's long dead, and this book's been buried in the ground for hundreds and hundreds of years and all this, but, the, but Philip, coming and listening to God, comes upon an Ethiopian who's reading it, who invites him up, and he just gets to tell him about Jesus. Nobody has that kind of strategy. Nobody can be, all you got to do is you just got to be prepared in the gospel and just realize that we are, we are many people, but we all have one mission. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. So Philip must have sat down and said something to the effect of, listen, so when God created humanity, God created us to be worshipers of his. God created us in a specific way. That way is to glorify God. But human, humanity is, has messed that up. Humanity's chosen to follow us, not God. And so sin creeps into humanity. And now we have the brokenness that we see around us. And in, Isaiah, and in, uh, in Philip's day, in the first century church, now the persecution of the world, the Roman Empire, all these things that are going on. He says, listen, now we got the jacked up world that we live in today. Jacked up may not have been the way he said it. It's what I would say. You get the point, right? Okay, good. My translation. So <clears throat> 
He says, and, but Jesus, but, but God didn't want to leave it like this. So God himself entered into human history in the flesh, Jesus, the man, the, the promise of who Isaiah is writing about. And Jesus lived the life that God has called us to live. And then he was executed on a cross to die for our sins. He was buried in a grave to suffer separation. And when he rose from the grave, he rose to give us victory over life. And he just shared the gospel with an Ethiopian over a message written long before Jesus lived. Verse 36, and they were going along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. I'm going to skip that verse since I quoted it earlier, but here's what happens. Clearly in the gospel presentation that Philip makes, something happened like it did in the, in just earlier in Acts. And what do I do then? Well, repent and be baptized. And Jesus will forgive your sins and he'll fill you with his spirit. And so as they're driving along, Philip says, see, here's water. Now they're in the middle of the desert. This is probably not a lake or an ocean, right? They're in the middle of a desert. They find some water. I don't know if he was immersed or sprinkled. It really doesn't matter. They found some water. And what Philip did was take this Ethiopian before he returned home and he identified him as a follower of Jesus through baptism. If you've never been baptized, just understand that's a piece of the puzzle for us. That is something we do in response to what Jesus has done for us. And that is something we do that God uses to empower us to be different, to empower us to the mission that he calls us to. Then it says this, but Philip found himself, oh, and so then when they came up out of the water, verse 39, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. He goes on and goes and does his things. When he's done there with the Ethiopian, God calls him away. And he goes to do the next thing. So we talk about being many people on one mission. I just wanted, I wanted to, what are three people we see in there that we're called to be like? And how do we do that? So I just want to walk through three application notes and we will pray and wrap this up. Can I have the first one? We have seen Isaiah 3,000 years ago, Philip, Peter, and John 2,000 years ago, all together on one mission. Sharing Jesus with a lost and broken world. What role do you play in proclaiming Christ to a lost world? So that's a question I want to I push to you. What role do you play? Not everybody's the same. Everybody's called to all the same things, but not everybody's wired the same or gifted the same. Next slide. Philip the evangelist. Philip shares the gospel naturally with others. We are all called to sharing Christ with those we know. And can learn from those who do it easily. There are gifted evangelists in here. I I get to hang out with Scott all the time. And Pastor Scott. And he is a gifted evangelist. We can learn from people who just naturally share Jesus. Like the conversation just flows naturally from them. Right? We can learn from them. Because it doesn't mean only, only guys like Pastor Scott or women or whatever that are gifted this way or to share Jesus. We're all called to that. But we can learn from those who are gifted at it. Next slide. Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah boldly proclaims the promises of God still to come. We all need this, and we can encourage others with the promises of God. God has, re- has promised to take away all the things that we have wrecked. And that hasn't all come to pass, but it's begun in Christ. We're all called to proclaim that. Some are more naturally gifted at that than others. But we're all called to it. We're all called to tell 
the promises of God to a lost and dying world. Last slide. Peter and John the apostles. Peter and John are trained and gifted to teach others about Jesus. We are all called to this. We are all called to disciple others and need to find someone who can pour into us so we can pour into others. We're all called to teach others, right? The Great Commission, go and make disciples. Teach, you know, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've given you, right? Jesus says, this is the mission. Go make students of Jesus. In order to make students of Jesus, you too must be a student of Jesus. Have someone meeting with you one-on-one, training you, discipling you. Find those you can pour into. Find those who are gifted where you're not, where I'm not, and let them equip you because we're all called to the same mission. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have equipped us, even in the ways that you have equipped us personally, you have also equipped us by giving others around us to us. Lord, as I get to celebrate watching uh, my friend and Pastor Scott share the gospel, as I get to watch others who proclaim the promises of God, I think of even Stephen there in the back, Lord, that he just loves to proclaim all that God is going to do. But those that teach us about the gospel... But those that equip us with those messages, those that disciple others, let us all be disciples, let us all be students, and let us all find those we can pour into. Jesus, we want to take your name to the lost. It's in your name we pray. Amen.